0: Hello, I'm Laura Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. Today, we're talking about the breadth and depth of cooking with vegetables with Chef Bryant Terry and his latest book, Vegetable Kingdom. I first met Bryant a few years ago when he was in town promoting his previous book, Afro Vegan, and I have to say, it's the only time I've ever walked away from a conversation with someone thinking, I just met someone who could win a MacArthur Genius Award, and I'm really not kidding when I say that. He has a huge range of interests and expertise, food, music, art, social justice, food systems, all firmly rooted in history. He has a unique way of weaving these things together in his books and in his work that's both compelling and inspiring. Since 2015, he's been chef-in-residence at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, he's won the James Beard Leadership Award, and Fast Company has named him one of the nine people who are changing the future of food. He visited our kitchen in February 2020, where he was in conversation with Seattle-based chef, educator, and activist Tarek Abdullah. Here's Bryant Terry and Vegetable Kingdom.
1: How's everybody doing? Good, 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 good. Yeah, welcome. My name is Chef Tariq Abdullah, AKA Cooker T. That's my new nickname now. Um, Shout out to the kids that gave me that name. Yeah, I'm here to hang out with this good brother right here. We met, I don't know, a little over two years ago. Just a quick passing. And then last year, we got a chance to cook together. Met his daughter, Mila. I guess we just bonded like right away. And I was like, okay, we got to cook together. So
2: It was really serendipitous how we just kind of ran into each other. I had an event one evening and I was um, at Lake Mary. Do we have any Californians in-house? Three people, hi. Three people. Uh. That's
1: right, Seattle's representing. That's right, yeah.
2: But uh, my daughters and I were in some like frozen yogurt shop on Lake Merritt, adjacent to downtown Oakland. And then he just walks by. And I, don't, I didn't even remember that we had met each other before, but I was like, hey, Tariq, it's Brian, it's Brian. So he came over, and then like this guy just dropped everything. He was like, can I do anything to help tonight? So he came in, and he basically just came in and ran the show for my event. <laughs> And let me just, you know, talk to people and he ran the kitchen. So thank you. Appreciate you, brother.
1: Yeah. I just feel like this is a good opportunity for a lot of us that live here to hear more about you. Because, you know, Pacific Northwest. Right. We have great vegetables here. And it's very uh, it's very easy for us to like fall down that road of just, you know, soy or I'm too scared to like mess with vegetables. And so I figure, you know, why not have someone that honestly that works with vegetables <coughs> and makes recipes that are very easy to create. So let's just go right into it. Let's just talk about, you know, it's Memphis, Tennessee. You know, we're we're the same age. We're what forty six, right? Yeah, we're the same age. Why are you trying,
2: trying right. to out me? <laughs> oh man, that's all right. I'm trying to pretend to my be bad. in my thirties still, dude. Okay, why? my <laughs> bad. We oh, right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> your twenty seventh birthdays next week. That's right. My bad. <laughs> Well, b- before we get started, I-, I feel like it's important for me to recognize, I don't know, I th- a lot of people, you know, have come to my work through my cookbooks. And, um, you know, some people think that this is my second cookbook because Afro Vegan was kind of my biggest book-, book to date. But this is actually my fifth book. And but I think it's important to recognize that before I even thought about writing cookbooks or being on television or doing public speaking or anything like that, my work started as a grassroots activist. And I was working with young people in New York City who are living in some of the most food insecure neighborhoods throughout the five boroughs. And we could talk a little bit about that, but before I get into that, I I first wanna start, and I think it's important to recognize that, we'll recognize the native people on whose land we're standing and the city is built. I think it's important to recognize the enslaved Africans who were brought to this country to do agricultural work. When you know about the institution of slavery, you know that there were different regions within West and Central Africa where enslaved Africans who had agricultural knowledge were brought to the Americas because of that knowledge to then be used and exploited for the institution of slavery. And I don't know if y'all, y'all just came to hear me talk about like how to um, like pan sear fennel and then baste it <laughs> in a citrus herb uh, marinade. We can talk no, about that. No, go no. on. But I just feel like it would be a dishonest conversation to talk about you know the type of food that I make and why I make it without recognizing... One, because my work has really been about helping people think about how do we reclaim our food system and how do we ensure that the most vulnerable populations have access to healthy, fresh, affordable, clean, culturally appropriate food. And we can't have an honest conversation about people getting access to healthy food unless we start with the reality that this food system, this current broken food system that we have is built on stolen land. Right. So the descendants of many of the settlers who came to this country and stole the land, control most of the land now. They control much, much of the agricultural land. You know, Enslaved Africans coming out of the institution of slavery, amassing land throughout the 20th century, had much of that land stolen from them by white racists violently and a racist USDA, like systematically stealing land from African-Americans. You know, and, and I've been thinking about this because I taught this class with Alice Waters at UC Berkeley a couple weeks ago. It's our Edible Education 101 class, which is an awesome course that's in its ninth year. You can actually look at the archives online. And so we, we structured the first class around this essay that Wendell Berry wrote where he's talking about different steps that you can take to be kind of reclaiming our food system. And the first step was talking about how we need to be active and producing food in whichever way we can. You know, growing food in a garden or at a community farm or tomatoes on your front porch or whatever. And in theory, I understand that. But when we start thinking about just the kind of like arc of our food system, particularly, you know, with African-Americans, because, you know, there's a population. I mean, that's my people. And then we talk about the land being stolen, you know. People might argue, well, that's, you know, that's the distant, that's a long time ago. We're in the 21st century now. You know, even if we go back to 2008 and we think about the mortgage crisis, almost 250,000 African-Americans lost their homes during that subprime mortgage crisis, right? And so, I don't think we can talk about food systems without talking about settler colonialism. We can't talk about food systems without talking about, you know, the violent theft of land from many people of color. I mean, we talk about, like, Japanese people here, the Bay Area, you know, mm-hmm. getting their land taken during World War II. So, I just wanted to start with a really light and happy <laughs> intro. So, there it is. <laughs> That's part all right. That's quite all right. Can that water? Yeah, water, 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 water. Would you want to take it back to Memphis? No,
1: no. I, with, no, honestly, I think, that, I think that's fine because what we're talking about, because, you know, I work with kids, and I feel like, for me, is we all have knowledge, and some of us don't have kids. But the goal is, like, what do you do with that knowledge when your time is done? You should think about what that shadow is. Mm-hmm. And so, for me, I want to start early instead of starting later. We're all part of the
2: solution. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I think that's what we're trying to shoot for, you know. And I I mean, I feel like that's a great place to start because I think about my own background in food and it goes back to my childhood. You know, I always say that the work that I'm doing is really about helping us remember, kind of piece back these histories. I'm wondering how many of you all come from families who might have been, you know, had smallholder farmers or people who are farmers in the family. Anybody? What about people who had um, family members or even yourself, you know, having home gardens, urban farms? Did any of your families used to, like, actually make meals from scratch? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What about, like, canning, pickling, preserving, things like that? And so I say that because I I feel like our fast food culture has almost, like, created this kind of cultural amnesia where people forget those things, you know? It's just like, when I think about my own upbringing— You know, I grew up in a family that had agrarian roots in rural Mississippi and Tennessee and Arkansas. And so my grandparents, when they moved to Memphis, where I grew up, you know, obviously they brought with them these survival traditions. this agrarian knowledge. this understanding that it's important to grow your land. You know, my grandfather used to always hammer this into my head. And I used to hate that every time we'd be in the garden, he would say this, but he'd make it clear. He's like, if you aren't able to grow your own food and you have to be relying on someone else growing your food for you or feeding you, then when they decide they don't want to, you're going to starve. And that was just like, it's constant refrain. And so I would say my grandfather, Andrew Johnson Terry, and my grandmother, my paternal grandfather, and my maternal grandmother, Margie Bryant, were the two biggest influences on me in terms of like my approach to cooking and eating because I spent a lot of time in my grandfather's backyard garden. And it was bigger than a garden. It was an urban farm because every bit of available space was being used to grow food. I mean, like he didn't leave anything open and I'm not gonna romanticize it. I hate it. I, I hated it. I really did. It was uh he was exploiting my labor and the, the rest of the grandkids. But there are so many important lessons that I learned because you know all the weeding and harvesting of food and shucking corn and shelling peas and you know all that was Important, And it helped me to learn so many lessons, you know, just the whole seat to table cycle. It helped me learn about patience. It helped me learn about like really seeing the, the benefits of the fruits of your labor. Yeah, like so many people in their neighborhood. You know, one thing that I feel like my work has been kind of pushing back against over five cookbooks now is this kind of vilification of black food, particularly African-American cuisine in the South. Uh, so often when people talk about it, they kind of imagine it as you know, the, 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 the worst food that one can eat, you know, the artery clogging heart attack, heart attack creating, you know, just horrible food. And I feel like there's always these racist undertones to that, because what people do is they reduce black food to the comfort foods of the cuisine. You know, when we think about the type of food that I think most people imagine is black food, like, you know, uh, big flavored meats and deep fried um whatever, foods and fatty, you know, Everything. like red velvet <laughs> cake, Shibuya. this heavy. Like, right. you know, these are foods that most often, especially before the industrialization of our food system, these were foods that people had on holidays and celebrations and special occasions, right? right. The right. type of food that like everyday working class um, and working poor black people had was the type of food that my grandparents were like growing in their backyard. And it's the type of food that I think any Western-trained allopathic physician or nutritionist or dietitian is, or dietitian would say that we all should be eating. You know, things like nutrient-dense leafy greens, like collards, mustards, turnips, kale, dandelions, things like sugar snap peas, pole beans, black-eyed peas. Like these were the staple foods of not only my grandparents and people in my family, but most of the people in their community you know these are people who migrated from the rural south to the urban south and they also brought with them these traditions and when i think back on that neighborhood it was a thriving local food system that was run by black people who lived in that neighborhood and it really saddens me when i go back there because it's a shell of itself you know you don't see gardens You don't see the mini orchards in people's backyard garden in their backyards like we used to see then. And then statistically, we know that this community is one in which you see some of the highest rates of preventable diet related illnesses, heart disease, hypertension, type two diabetes. And so once again, I think it's about how can we kind of like uphold those legacies, you know, and the um, Tweed language of Ghana, West Africa, it's this word called Sankofa which means kind of like looking backward as we move forward. It's symbolized by this bird who's actually walking forward, but has its head back kind of holding this precious egg. And I think that, you know, it's really about us like kind of revisiting, reclaiming, and uplifting these histories. And I think we all should be do this, doing this as we try to kind of reclaim and take back our um, food system from the four or five multinational corporations <laughs> who largely run over half of our food system. Mm-hmm. And that's why we think it's, it's why it's also important to realize, too, it's like it's one thing
1: that folks like us and many other folks that are in this room right now that do this work that we're doing. It's really important that everyone here in this room take the time and do the work because we can only do so much, you know, and I, you know, collectively. That's why ants work well, you know, they work collectively. And when we work collectively, we we all want to extend our lineage. So let's work collectively and, and figure out that by creating food systems that we know that can work for all of us, not just for a certain sex,
2: per se. I agree. I talk about the three C's of change. Because, you know, I talked about this in my dinner with um, Eduardo Jordan in hey. his restaurant, Solari. Have you, have you guys my been God. to Eduardo Jordan's restaurant? If you haven't been, like, run. Don't walk over there. <laughs> but he did this really brilliant dinner inspired by my recipes last night. And there were 80 people who came, and we had a good time. But I talked a little bit about the way in which... I think, you know, capitalism, it, it encourages to always think about, like, individual change. You know, I'm going to do it for, I'm going to change for myself or for my family. And I do think we need to think more collectively about how can we create positive change for everyone. You know, it's exciting to me, having done this work for two decades, to see people who are so excited about and being and invested in kind of being a part of a more healthier and sustainable food system. You know, I think people are going to farmer's markets and people are joining CSAs and people are starting gardens and buying, you know, fair trade and organic and local. But what bothers me and what I think is a little problematic is so often I feel like people default towards just like um, consumer change, right? Mm. So I'm going to start going to an unnamed, overpriced Whole Food store that was recently acquired by Amazon.com and buying... <laughs> all the good organic and helpful stuff, or, you know, I'm gonna to go to the farmer's market, you know, and buy my food there and not go to the supermarket. And I think those type of consumer actions are important. But, you know, as I said last night, we aren't gonna find liberation in the bottom of a basket, right? And I think so often people, you know, feel like, well, if I just spend accordance in accordance with my values, that's enough. And I think it's important to spend in accordance with our values. You know, I talked about how, like, you know, typically when you go to a farmer's market or if you join a farm or if you're somehow buying directly from the farm, like they're getting up to 90 cents on every dollar you spend. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you go to like some market that isn't paying them fairly, sometimes it's the inverse. They may get 10 cents on every dollar you spend because it's so much of the money is going towards these external costs like shipping and marketing. And so, yeah, we do need to spend in accordance with our values. But I, I, I talk about the three C's. The first C is consumer change. Great. Yes, let's do that. But then the second one is community change. How can we support Organizations like, you know, what Tariq is doing with young people in the city and, you know, just doing it on the love, not really having, you know, institutional funding or not having enough institutional funding, you know, really just kind of like scraping things together. Like, I don't expect everyone in here to like quit their jobs and become a food activist, but think about tithing of your, your time your talent, your treasure, like help out these organizations. And there are innumerable organizations throughout this city, throughout this region, throughout this country that we can support. But then the last C I always talk about is how can we understand the role that we can play as citizens and actually helping to change our food system? Because we know that these are structural issues. We know that many of our elected officials are making decisions in the best Mm -hmm. interest of those four or five multinational food corporations. And they don't care about, I mean, Maybe they do, but they care more about the money that these lobbyists are putting in their pockets than they do about actual people, about public health, about, you know, their constituents. And so I just want people to think about like the three C's of change, like moving beyond just, you know, thinking about spending money as a solution to the problems that we have in our food system.
1: You know, let's just shift it a little bit. You know, you know, we talk about kids, you know what I'm saying, because I love working with kids. What's something that stuck out for me in the vegetable kingdom was introduction to cinzy you know how you introduce the fennel to her i thought that was really adorable because but at the same time it's you know introducing something new to a child is a fun challenge and i'm not even a parent but i love that i love that idea of just like come up with something but that nervousness was there too at the same time <laughs> and it's obvious that there was a lot of approval from the little rascals yeah and more so Talk about a little bit of the process a little bit and the, the munchkins.
2: Well, I, I, I'll say this, my wife and I, so we did like really well with the first kid and we totally effed it up with the second one. <laughs> and, the re- and so this is what we did with our oldest daughter and I was pretty insistent and my wife was on board, but when we started feeding our oldest daughter Mila solid foods, I was pretty insistent that we shouldn't introduce fruits into her diet until like maybe four or five months down the line. Right? And I think it's easy to fall in love with fruits. I mean, fruits like nature's candy. Mm -hmm. So I was like, you know what? Let's do an experiment on this child (laughs) and (laughs) (laughs) yeah, that's (laughs) right. And so what we did was we just bombarded her, di- her diet with, like, vegetables. And, and I was, there, was a, there was an emphasis on, like, bitter because I feel like bitter is such an unappreciated um, flavor in the American palate. You know, Agreed. people are like, ugh, bitter. And, Agreed. like, in other food cultures, like, bitter, it's prized. It's, like, welcome. And so we did that, and that set the tone for Mila having a very diverse and adventurous palate. And then, of course... <laughs> Raising one kid, you know, you got a newborn, and I was just like, whatever, we're in survival mode. Just (laughs) feed that child whatever (laughs) she will eat. And so we saw a big difference. I mean, like, Zinzi, and I write this in the intro, that she's just like, well, she was kind of like pasta, bread, crackers, that was the thing. And it was hard. I mean, you know, it was like we have the food at the table and she eat her bread and we're like, you got to eat the greens or whatever. And she's not, and then we just had to keep feeding her bread. And so, um well, so I'll say this. One of the, the litmus tests for the success of these oh, recipes yeah. truly was if, um you know, my my daughter's, like them, I would say at least 80% of the recipes, I would introduce them to, to them at dinner. And, um, you know, kids are brutally honest. There are a couple instances yes. where it yes. wasn't even like, I don't like that. It was just like, I'm spitting this out right in your face. <laughs> and looking you dead in the eyes when I'm
1: doing <laughs> <laughs> What?
2: <laughs> so... It's humbling. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I argued. I mean, and this is by no means a kid's book, but I really felt that if I could somehow, like, play with these vegetables and create recipes that they would like, then I think most people would like them. And so, um, yeah, kid-friendly adult recipes.
1: (laughs) You have a new badge? Because I have a new one this year. For me, the kids are what, you know, we're talking about bitter. Yeah. My goal this year is to do chicories and do them all yep, and really throw them off. Mm-hmm. Like we're going to, we're going to char them. Yeah. We're going to grill them. We're going to blanch them. We're going to puree them. And it's a totally different, something they never, ever really tried. Mm-hmm. So
2: what are you trying out now? It's not necessarily new, but it, you know, because we're in that season, um, right. you know, I, I'm also doing a lot of bitter leafy vegetables. And the thing is to counterbalance it, I just try to do like some kind of aggressive, like creamy dressing so that it's a little, you know, I might put some agave in it or some dates or something. So it has a little bit of sweetness and sweet- it kind of balance it. And you know, some of them they aren't feeling, but I feel like the more they eat them, the more it's been opening their palate and they've been um, kind of into it these days. That's the system, see that's a
1: system right there. That's literally a little system that's already like starting and encouraging the idea of healthy eating. And that's why I think it's important to start as early as possible. Cool, man. I like I like the progression between the two, man.
2: I've gotten a lot better, I have to say. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's been six years since my last book project. And I'll be, like, completely honest. I intentionally took off time because I wanted to be with my kids in the early phases. And I was getting a lot of pressure from, you know, my handlers <laughs> to write another book. But, you know, I, I really... And, I don't regret it at all. I mean, there are moments where I feel like I should have probably, you know what? I don't regret it at all. Because you know what my fear was? My fear was, and this is just me being completely transparent, so I was like, people are gonna forget about me. You know what I mean? Like It's been six years, Like people have these kind of like short-term memories and they're on to the next thing with our social media age that we're in. But I will say that this room shows me that I was totally wrong. So, yeah, I'm Thank you. You know, I take pride in the fact that we started our, um, Mila, our oldest daughter in cello when she was three. And I take pride, like serious pride in the fact that I took her to almost every one of her lessons. I went to every recital and, you know, those are the type of things like the bond that we created, you know, the memories that we have, that's going to last a lifetime. So I was like, you know, book be damned. Like I can get to a book, the the writing will always be there, but I really want to, um, you know, have this special bond with the kids. Because I know it's going to be a point in a couple years where they're just going to be like, um, we don't want to be with you. <laughs> Stop saying I love you when you drop me off. In fact, just drop me off at the corner and I'll walk away. rest of the way. But I do want to say that so much of my approach to thinking about how we can feed children comes from when I was um, in New York. And I founded an organization called Be Healthy. Does anybody know about this? I founded this organization called Be Healthy. And you know, at the time, I feel like the kind of food movement was starting to, to gain a foot, or at least this kind of contemporary iteration of it. We found a lot of organizations who were doing things like, you know, community gardens. And then some of them were doing things like mostly community gardens and urban farms, to be honest with you, at that time in New York City. And what I wanted to do was bring more of a kind of a more radical lens to which we understand food systems, you know, not to in any way take away from the importance of greening our cities and reclaiming, you know, unused spaces and like, you know, bombing the city with greens. I think that's important. But I also wanted these young people that we were working with to understand why they had such horrible food at school. Why is it that in their communities, as one of my friends said, you could probably find a, a, a gun quicker than you could find an organic apple. Why is it that so many of them were dealing with the hunger issues? Because it was one thing to talk about food access, but we had a number of people, in, young people in our program who didn't know where their next meal was gonna come from. And that was scary for me. I had to learn a lot of lessons around this reality of just because you know we look alike, mm-hmm. I didn't know their reality. You know, I come, nice. I come from a privileged family and I was working with kids who were like at the margins. And so the biggest lessons I learned at that time is that people like me who have access, who have, you know, resources, who have an education, it's my job to help build power within those young people. I think the whole thing part. about like food justice that people need to understand, unlike if we're talking about, you know, food insecurity in the way that like NGOs or governmental organizations might talk about it, like food justice, like food justice activists are responding to this reality that in many communities, I mean, you could like get technical with it and look at how like the census track might like label a community low income and there's not a mid-service supermarket within a mile, but like, let's just keep it simple. Like communities that don't have access to healthy, fresh, affordable and culturally appropriate food. And so the thing about, Food justice is that it moves beyond advocacy and direct service, and it calls for organized responses to food insecurity or food injustice by those who are most impacted by food insecurity, meaning that the people who are living in communities should be the ones who are owning and driving the change. And so that's the challenge. You know, how it can is. we build power? How can we shift resources? I think we have to get beyond this kind of paternalistic model where you have philanthropic organizations or you know, NGOs who come in and are you know, telling people how they should make change. Or there's so many strings attached to the grants that they might get. And I think people know that they're having problems. They know creative solutions. They just need resources. And I saw that in the young people. They were so brilliant and so creative. And we just want to give them the power to actually, like, figure out ways to actually bring their um, ideas to life.
1: Good food should be a right and not a privilege. I think that was your quote, right?
2: It's a human right. It's a human right. Yeah. It is. And not just with children. You know, everyone. I mean, we're talking, you know, we live in a food system where 800 million, because I I, I do encourage people to think beyond, like, what's happening in the United States. Well, first of all, I want to say this. I think people are probably familiar with this term, food deserts. Right. People have heard of food deserts. So the kind of communities that I describe where you have very little access to healthy, fresh, affordable food. People have over the past couple decades. That's been like the term that has been in parlance. But the new term in, in the lexicon of food justice activism that a lot of people are using is food apartheid. Right. And so people are largely rejecting food deserts because it doesn't <clears throat> it, it, it almost naturalizes the problem. And when we talk about this problem, it's historic, it's structural, and, and I think food apartheid gets at that in a better way. But I just want us to think beyond even like what's happening in the United States. You know, Globally, there are um, over 800 million people who are chronically malnourished, you know, dealing with chronic hunger issues, I should say, meaning that for like a year or more, people are hungry. We know that 80% of those who are dealing with food insecurity globally most of the people who are dealing with food insecurity are actually farm workers, people who are working in the food system. Like these are people who can't even feed their families and feed themselves. And so I I just wanted to say that because I think it's important to be like focused on what's happening locally, but also thinking about what's happening globally and how we might be complicit in actually upholding these systems, because there are many of the, Mm the handful of multinational corporations that are you know behind our broken food system, uh, a lot of them are headquartered right here in the United States. I don't even know why I went on that that's all right but <laughs> that,
1: that, that just sounds like a you know that's just a me- that's, a, that's a memory we don't really want to see anymore you know i think it's it's uh it's important to realize that food there's a reason why food has a price because there's work involved there's plenty work involved. look at the fact of like how you spend
2: your money on your food, where you get your food from, and spend accordingly. Americans don't like spending money on food. Man. (laughs) Like, I mean, Americans spend like less than 10% of their income is actually on food. Hmm. That's a problem. That's crazy.
1: Yeah. I got a good one for you. I got a good one for you right now. What came first,
2: the sound or the taste? Om. Right? Om. That's Mm. the primal sound. I mean according to some, you know, eastern philosophers. But anyway, that's for
1: you. Really. I don't know if what that's a riddle it? that you No, what, <laughs> no, what was it? What, you know, you're, you know, you're 6 years old, you're 7 years old. Mm-hmm. What came first? Was it the first was it the, the first note of music was that record or was it was it that first bite of food? What, what 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 really resonates with you
2: first that comes to mind? I think one of my first food memories or at least when I'm ruminating on food, I th- one of the things that comes up is eating pickle watermelon rind. I remember my grandmother opened up one of the jars in her pantry and gave me pickled watermelon rind. Have people had pickled watermelon rind? Do not throw away your rinds when you eat (laughs) watermelon. Mm. Seriously, all you need to do is get a Y-shaped peeler and then peel off the green part. You know, you can cut it up in whatever slices and make you kind of a, a sweet marinade and just like let it sit. And I mean, you can, you know, process it and put it up in a pantry or you can just make a quick pickle and put it in the refrigerator and it is so good. Like in fact um, Food and Wine, we were in conversation about me contributing recipes to this um, August issue and I had this idea. I don't know if you guys like, have you had shaved ice like the Hawaiian, Mm -hmm. you know, so y'all know about shaved ice. So I was like, I want to do a southern shaved ice. So it was going to be like a watermelon granita and then I wanted to add some fresh um, fruit and then pick a watermelon rind and then like some sweet creamy stuff on top of it. But they were like, darn it, we already have a mango granita next. So I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Oh, I wanna say something real quick. I know you had to put your phones away, but I do wanna ask people, take them out for a second, please. If you have an Instagram account, I'd like you to go to my Instagram and follow me. And my handle is Bryant, B R Y A N T T E R R Y, Bryant Terry. If you don't have Instagram, you're still in the Stone Ages. You can go to Twitter <laughs> and add it on there. If you're in the future, you can add me on TikTok.
1: <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> you know, I,
2: I try to stay abreast of youth culture. <laughs> but let's talk about this. I wanna, you know, we can, we can move we, Food politics, let's talk about just food. Central pleasures of food. eating, Yes. yes. Food, yeah, all that stuff.
1: Yeah, my, uh, my chef handle is uh, Tariq. Period, Abdullah on Instagram as well. Um, We're getting ready to start our new season. Um, Got a lot lined up coming up in about a month and a half.
2: I got to take my cues from this guy. He's like the master brander. Not only does he have like the branded sweatshirts, that's easy. But when I saw his Feed the People leather jacket, I was like, oh, I'm slipping. (laughs) (laughs) I got to catch up with this guy. (laughs) Oh, man. How do people feel about me reading an excerpt from the introduction? Yes. Yes, yes. That'd be do cool. That. Okay. Do that. Do that. Do that. So the introduction is called Fennel for Zinzi. Vegetable Kingdom is inspired by my daughters, Mila and Zinzi. They have blessed this book like my ancestors blessed meals by humbling me to that which is greater than myself. When Mila pulls a gloriously resonant hum out of our cello and when Zinzi dances in energetic spins and wild flourishes. They are turning the love and effort I pour into them into a vitality and power that they will carry far beyond what I could ever know. I wrote this book to make a diversity of foods of the plant kingdom irresistible to them, to inspire their curiosity, and to show them the pleasures of a lifelong adventure with good, nourishing food. That mission drives this book. Vegetable Kingdom reflects the essence of how my wife, Jadon, and I root and raise our children. Mila and Zinzi have been rooted in the garden with farm-fresh ingredients and raised on a diversity of dishes springing from the deep well of Black and Asian food ways. We help shape their multicultural identity organically by creating and consuming Afro-Asian food and the spectrum of flavors they engage, often in the same meal. While I emphasize ingredients, cooking techniques, and classic dishes of the African diaspora, Jadon does the same with Asian food—Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese— So this book features a number of ingredients and flavors from East and Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, the Caribbean and the American South. With such an expanse of cultural ground to cover, it is serendipitous that it was the Mediterranean, a region at at the crossroads of Africa, Asia and Europe, and one of its heartiest vegetables, fennel, that acted as the catalyst for unifying the dynamic spirit and energy that permeates this book. A few years ago, I was at the farmer's market checking out the late summer, early fall bounty, flavorful seascape strawberries, fresh cranberry shelling beans, vibrant red burgundy okra, and plump pomegranates, to name a few. That morning, fennel was all over the place. The bulbs glowed bright white, the stalks and fronds were moist and fresh, and their anise-like aroma was strong. One stand offered samples of crunchy sweet slices with fresh lemon juice squeezed over them. I had never really bought fennel unless a recipe required it, but that day, the fennel was calling me. (laughs) Your boy bought four bunches on the strength of that smorgasbord for the senses. Driving home, I decided I would use every part of the fennel. I envisioned the feathery fronds as a garnish flashing back to Instagram posts by some of my favorite chefs like J.J. Johnson, Rob McDaniel, and Jeremy Fox, creatively balancing color and making dishes pop by arranging fresh herbs, microgreens, and citrus zest on top of them. I figured I would put the fennel stems into the freezer along with other vegetable scraps reserved for stocks. But I had no idea how I would cook the bulb that day, even though it's the only part I really used in the past. Regardless of how I prepared the fennel, I was a little nervous that Zinzi, my five-year-old, would not be into it. Mila, my eight-year-old, has always had an adventurous palate. She loves to try different cuisines and takes pride in eating unfamiliar dishes. Zinzi, on the other hand, would be happy if she had... Pasta, bread, and crackers at every meal. (laughs) My other goal was to create a dish through the lens of the African diaspora, inspired by visual artists Romare Bearden, Jean-Michel Basquiat, Deborah Roberts, and Derek Adams, as well as some of my favorite hip-hop producers, like Prince Paul, The Bomb Squad, DJ Premier, RZA, Organized Noise, and Mad Lib. We got any hip-hop heads in the house? Okay, All right. (laughs) That was for you. Uh, (laughs) I've approached recipe development as a collagist, curating, cutting, pasting, and remixing staple ingredients, cooking techniques, and traditional black dishes popular throughout the world to make my own signature recipes. But this approach is bigger than creating cookbooks. Many people build altars, visit grave sites, and reminisce with photos to engage with loved ones who have passed. For me, recipe creation is a praxis where I honor and bring to life the teachings, traditional knowledge, and hospitality of my blood and spiritual ancestors by making food. While it may not be obvious, most recipes that I develop stand on the shoulders of relatives, mentors, historical heroes and heroines, and those who inhabit the land on which I live and work. Educating my girls about it and introducing them to the foods and flavors of the African diaspora allows me to teach history and share memories with them. It helps them learn about and take pride in their contributions of their ancestors, culinary and otherwise, and it celebrates foods of the African diaspora in a world where European cuisine is at the center and Black food is often at the margins. So how did I blackify fennel, (laughs) use the entire vegetable, and create a recipe that even the most finicky eaters would enjoy? In my first pass, I pan-seared it in olive oil, then basted it in a tangy citrus and garlic herb sauce inspired by mojo, a condiment and marinade popular in Cuban cooking. It was solid, but something was missing. To bring more complexity and balance while building on the Afro-Caribbean theme, I thinly sliced some of the fennel stalks and added them to the sauce while simmering and basting the fennel. I also pulverized, y'all gonna love this, savory plantain chips in a spice grinder and sprinkled the powder on top before serving. So this is my creation. I want to patent this. (laughs) plantain powder, right? That's a smooth You move. can get you some green plantains, the savory ones, not the yellow ones that are almost kind of like browning, but the green ones. Fry those up. You can pulverize them in a mortar with a pestle or you can spin them in a, um, grind them in a spice grinder or you can just go buy a bag of savory plantain chips and then
1: do that. <laughs> and being the spice guy, I'll get a little bit of Ra's off grind it up, mix that right on there, grate right on top of you know, French should, toast. Boom, I she got have. you. Yeah, right there with you.
2: Okay. I'm doing that. (laughs) The fennel was fire. It even passed muster with my girls. As I nervously looked on during dinner, they were all smiles, and they couldn't get enough of the plantain powder. Turned out, freestyling an African diaspora-inspired vegetable dish was easier than I thought. Our girls tasted and approved most of the recipes in this book, so even if dishes don't appear to be kid-friendly, they are. In fact, I want real food to be seen as kid-friendly. It incenses me when we eat at nice restaurants and the kids' menu is limited to hot dogs, fries, and chicken fingers, when it could flourish with millet, red lentil, and potato cakes, pan-seared summer squash sandwiches, and jerk tofu wrapped in collard leaves. We serve our girls whole food meals at home, but the idea that kids can't enjoy what adults eat is horribly reinforced when those menus bearing heavily processed crap and edible food-like substances, shout out to Michael Pollan, uh, (laughs) are plopped in front of them as soon as we sit down. At home, I will often take the most obscure vegetables and prepare them in familiar ways so that Mila and Zinzi raise their food IQ and expand their palates. Throughout the writing of Vegetable Kingdom, I realized that this educational approach would apply to anyone, you may not have tried or heard of kohlrabi, but I promise you, you'll be hooked once you simply co-roast it and serve it with the West African-inspired peanut sauce, garnished with peanuts, Fresno chilies, and lemon zest. Even the structure of Vegetable Kingdom was inspired by my daughters. I initially planned to organize a book around the Four Seasons, as I mostly build meals with an eye on the beautiful seasonal produce growing in our home garden or piled on tables in farmers markets throughout Northern California. But after Mila mentioned that our gardening class at school classifies vegetables according to which part of the plant is eaten, I decided to follow that structure for this book. Seeds, bulbs, stems, flowers, fruits, leaves, fungi, tubers, roots. For vegetables that fall into multiple categories, I strive to use all parts of the plant. For example, beets offer their commonly used roots as well as their delicious edible leaves, which are often discarded. The literal vegetable kingdom is vast. And I know botanically fungi are not considered a vegetable, but lighten up, okay? I wanted some (laughs) mushrooms in the book, all (laughs) right? In Vegetable Kingdom, you'll find more than 175 recipes, including sub-recipes and pantry items that bring out the best in more than 30 vegetables. I also share my favorite tools, tips, and ideas for cooking vegetables and building creative meals on your own. You can find most ingredients at a farmer's market or quality supermarket, but you might need to visit specialty grocery stores or order some ingredients online. It's worth it to get the full flavor of the recipe and to fall in love with vegetables, grains, or legumes you've never had before. My sincere hope is that this book affects real change in your world by inspiring your journey into the vast and verdant pleasures of botanical bounty. If this book moves you to try new vegetables and to think more critically and creatively about how and what you eat, I'll fulfill the calling to create this homage to health as learning and pleasure. Now go forth and explore vegetable kingdom. That's true.
0: Many thanks to Bryant Terry for visiting us in Seattle, and to Tarik Abdullah for leading the discussion. And if you want to learn more about Bryant's work in the Bay Area, he was just featured on CBS this morning. I highly recommend checking it out. We'll link to the video in the show notes. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of Vegetable Kingdom and any other books featured on Booklarder Podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. We have signed copies of many of the featured books, so be sure to get one of those while they last. And if you visit us in the shop, just mention that you heard about a book on the podcast for 10% off in-store as well. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed and performed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you like what you heard here, leave us a rating and review to help others find us. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit BookLarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, visit us in person at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.